You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. everyone to M Pavilion. Thanks for joining us on this uh, balmy, kind of warm evening actually, isn't it? I'm surprisingly quite warm and um, obviously warmed by all of your company tonight as well. So thank you for joining us. Um, Welcome to M Pavilion. This M Talk is all about co-creation in the built environment and is aimed at having a robust conversation with our industry peers about how to be better and more responsible custodians, creators, and activators of place. Hello to our co-audience today, you all sitting here with us. Uh, my name is Jessica Watson, Experience uh, Direction and Creation at Free State. Uh, we're Experience Master Planners. Um, and I would like to begin this M talk by respectfully, respectfully acknowledging the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation as the first peoples and traditional custodians of the land and waterways on which we gather today. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Today we'll be exploring the process of collaboration between multiple stakeholders and exploring um, a dynamic new approach of co-creation within the built environment. Now co-creation is not new, but um, it's an emerging practice within the built environment discipline. So we'll be exploring a way um, or a few ways forward today um, that we've been exploring. Um, Each of us comes as individual practitioners, um, but we have actually done a couple of projects together. So we've got individual learnings, but we've also got some collective experience on some really good case studies um, that we might tap into today as well. Um, Our panel panel has extensive experience in community facilitation, participatory planning, experience design and place activation. So our co-panel guests are Richard Mullane, Kate Spencer and Tim Dow. Um, Rich Mullane is an architect, urban designer and urban planner with Hassel, who amongst a multinational career and playing key roles in numerous award-winning projects is a fantastic facilitator and champion for involving communities in the design process. Kate Spencer is a creative producer and experienced designer whose practice focuses on shaping and delivering experiences that connect people, place and stories. Her work spans museums, heritage sites, mixed-use precincts, and public realm projects around the world, as well as Indigenous-led storytelling projects within Australia. Tim Dow is a strategist and urban designer by training, uh, focusing on the user's experience in large, complex environments through a rigorous yet highly collaborative and community-driven approach to understanding, defining, designing, uh, experience-led solutions and interactions. So, welcome everybody. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for coming and thanks for having us, Jess. Uh, excited to have this talk with you today. <laughs> so um, it's going to be more of a discussion and we do welcome, you know, comments and questions from the audience as well. Um, we're going to be proposing some methods, but um, obviously there's no right way to do this in an emerging practice. So we'd welcome some questions along the way, um, you know, challenge us, um, 
uh, give your perception of ways that you've done it before um, and, you know, let's work together to uh, advance this practice altogether. Um, so the first topic is about the industry um, and I wanted to ask you all, what is co-design? Um, so maybe in um, a few words, Rich, how would you describe co-design? Uh, I think... I think from my perspective, it's the opposite of traditional design process and architecture. It's, it's, so it's not one person's name. It's not one magical creative process from a genius outside of the users uh, or those within an organisation. And it is, it is not uh, finished at a certain point. It's a live process. Live process. I like that. Kate, what is co-design for you? I, I totally agree. For me, it's a mindset. So it's a mindset that starts when you're... You know, it's strategy end, but it's a mindset that needs to be embedded in every project all the way through that's about creating opportunities for other people to participate in place in the future and in the planning of it from the beginning. So to me, it's, you know, it is collaboration, which is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, but yeah, in a participatory way. And Tim, what's co-creation for you? What, what can I add to that? Um, it's definitely collaborative. And I think uh, beyond sort of professional practitioners, it's... It's collaborative uh, with the client, it's with the end user, it's with the people working on the project. Um, it's across the board. And, and as um, Rich and Kate have said, it's an ongoing thing. It's not, um, you can't put a red pen around it. You can't define it quite succinctly um, in time and in space as well as experience. Cool. And Rich, you tapped into this as um, a non-traditional process. So can you explain to us what is the traditional process and why is this new discipline emerged and why do we need it? Yeah, I suppose, um, well, maybe as the, as the reformed architect up here, I can, I can sort of talk about what traditional architecture is and why it doesn't satisfy communities or even clients anymore. And I, th I think that this idea of, uh, you know, uh, the, the tortured artist coming through with a solution for people who no longer um, satisfies any complex project, but also even um, attempts to sort of engage the community by the traditional design industry around, like, here's two options for you to choose between, or here is, uh, here's a design, tell us what you think of it, uh, just doesn't, um, doesn't create lasting and meaningful solutions for communities or, or for organisations. So we're not just talking about co-design with the community, we're also talking about, you know, with, with corporate clients who, who want something that involves their team and has more meaning than what a consultant can provide. Yeah, and what about for you, Kate? Um, which part of the process, you know, you're um, involved in upfront creative strategy all the way through to delivery, when do you feel co-design is most um, impactful? Um... I think it can be impactful all the way around, but where I think its impact is most felt is kind of the future beyond once a project has been delivered, when there are opportunities for people in the community to, to shape, shape place for themselves. And some of those opportunities you need to anticipate or at least create space for in those early phases. And, you know, so often I've been involved in projects once a place is, you know, being built and you're looking to activate it, but, and there's some really simple things that, you might want to do, but you just can't do because the infrastructure's not there and it just hasn't been thought through at the very beginning. So I think for me, it's about making sure that those opportunities, whether they're used or not, have potential down the track. 
Yeah, so Tim, how do you, as a strategist, creative strategist, um, so obviously strategy is key to this whole and allowing space as, as Kate has just mentioned. So um, when do you think it's most impactful? Um, as a strategist, as far upstream as possible, um, before there is even a project, before there's even a brief, um, co-design really helps ensure um, we're balancing and considering all sides. Um, we're thinking about things from many different perspectives, uh, bringing it together, adding it together, augmenting the ideas together um, to help inform what a project brief could, should be. Um, that's, when, that's when the maximum impact is felt. Yeah, and um, so maybe just following on from that, um, between Rich, the reformed architect, and Tim, your reformed urban designer as well, um, where does the, you know, the experience master planner or the co-designer sort of sit between um, the client, the designer, um, and all the stakeholders that we've got? So how does that relationship um, work? Rich, maybe you first. Yeah, um, I mean, I think following on from what Tim said, that the it's really effective to ask people for their input um, around the purpose of a project, yeah? Um, so I think uh, the co-designer or facilitator is important very early on. In my experience, when you go to a community and, and you want to talk to them about a project that already is formed and has a purpose, you're not going to have very successful conversations because they have their own challenges going on around livability, um, you know, uh, every single community that we work with has existing challenges and the brief of a project has to be formed and aligned to tick as many of those boxes as well as whatever uh, purpose we thought we had for the project. So someone maybe like Tim in the strategy bucket might, might come in very early even before we have a site or we know why we're doing the project. Is that fair? Yeah, and it's, it, it's interesting because on some projects there's a thing that people want to make or create and that thing could be a building or it could be a space, it could be a digital platform, it could be a brand or an identity, it could be a story, it could be an exhibition. Um, and depending on what the purpose of the, of the project is, each medium can solve it in a very different way and sometimes they can't solve the purpose at all. Um, so, yeah, defining that sort of vision piece um, and the purpose of the project is something that uh, I do a lot of work around, um, helping to define what that experience should be, what the purpose of the project could be, um, to help define future projects. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is it's maybe about defining the North Star and, you know, the thing that's aligning all of the different design practitioners and even the client and the stakeholders involved in their client groups around one particular sort of vision. Um, so, um, and... Kate, you know, what do you think is the difference between community engagement and community co-creation? Like, uh, as um, the projects go along and they're more community or um, output-led, um, how do you see the role of co-design helping that process um, towards delivery? I think, you know, community consultation is so often a checkbox that's done too late in the process or it's done early in the process but you're not you don't come back to it. So it's, you know, it's, it's a tick box. Um, I think when you can involve community at different levels in the delivery of projects, and sometimes that's through partnering with the right organisations or working with the right suppliers who have 
other connections to community, um, I think that just enriches the project. And I, and I think the way you deliver something, you know, there's nuanced ways around how you deliver things that are kind of a little bit more participatory too, which have a kind of long-standing impact, some of which you don't see, but you see, you note the impact at the end. It's a bit of a disruptive process though, right? Like I guess um, traditional projects aren't really specced in this way. They don't have budget for this in the beginning. Um, you know, when an RFP, you know, request for proposal or an expression of interest comes out, no one's defined that they needed, you know, a co-design process or that they, you know, a strategy phase um, could be so prominent to the process. So, you know, Rich, how do you focus on that and, and work with clients to sell in the benefit of this? Yeah, I mean, some, some of our RFPs or briefs do have requirements that align with what co-design achieves. So, you know, a lot of the time now clients are interested in what the social impact of our approach to a certain commission is. I mean, there's no greater impact I think that designers can have than uh, bringing the community into a process and uh, helping to build capacity and skills within that community. So, for example, we, we worked in San Francisco on resilience projects, like pretty complex topics with consultants that are giving us all sorts of, you know, seismic risk, flood risk and things like this. But but I think for designers to get the skills to be able to um, explain those topics to a community and open space for them to define uh, where they think there's value in investing in their own community is uh, has a huge ticks a lot of boxes in, in a traditional RFP, but maybe it's just not known. The other thing I would say is that often clients do this themselves before they form a brief. So they write a brief, it's not great. Half of their team is upset with it and feels like it didn't capture what they wanted in the brief. And they could have just taken all that time and energy and just put it into the actual project and we would do it better for them. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a community-led project there um, in San Francisco. What other kind of projects has this um, been successful for for you? Um, yeah, I think interestingly, um, I think one of the interesting things in the design industry is how it's becoming more international. People uh, are interested in international perspectives and to work effectively overseas in places like China and Singapore and cultures that use space differently um, and are looking for different things out of our projects. It, it's just a necessity for us to engage very early in a very open way about what people want rather than assuming that if we build a park in Shanghai, it's going to be used the same way as if we build a park in Sydney. Um, so it's been, it's, been, it's, all, it's been good for us in that sense. And I've I also have been surprised that sometimes um, people are more receptive to a co-design process with somebody from outside of their community. They're more open to Australians asking them questions than people from Beijing. For example, is this weird sort of tribalism that um, sometimes the questions of cure, the conversation is more, um, gets to more substance when it's from outsiders asking open questions. Yeah, that's good. So asking questions, Tim, you are the question master. You should be leading today. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Um, I like to prompt discussions. I like to facilitate sessions and, and talk with people. I just like talking with people. So... I hope we get some questions because then we can actually have some conversations rather than us just talking at you. Um, but it is, it, it's, it's interesting hearing Rich talk about it. Um, I often start a facilitation session by saying I'm not the expert, you guys are the expert. I'm here as a tool to help you come up with the answers. I don't have the answers. 
um, you, the, the, the group that we assemble have the answers and we need to bring it out. And you often have really good conversations and, and you find that within the group, they start having conversations that they could have had previously, but they, for some reason the, 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 the context hasn't been there for them to be able to have those conversations for some reason. But you assemble this group and they, they suddenly are bouncing ideas off each other and building off each other's ideas um, in a way that's yeah, pretty, pretty magical. Um, you get more out of it than you put in, which is yeah, amazing. I can imagine there's a lot that goes into the scene setting before we can get to that sort of openness um, required for a co-design session. So um, can you talk to us a little bit about like how do you sort of set the scene and how do we find the participants and um, what is all the upfront planning involved in this? Uh, there's, there's lots. There's lots of preparation that goes into it. Um, often you'll need to run some fairly rigorous discovery work and investigation work up front to, to define what are, what are some good starting points? What are some good questions that you want to interrogate as a group? Um, they could come in the form of how might we questions or what if questions. Um, and they generally relate to challenges that you're trying to resolve within the space that you're playing in, whether it's spatial or digital or, or, or otherwise. Um, so you have, you have an investigation pack that defines the challenges that you're trying to solve. Um, and alongside that, you're trying to assemble the right mix of people, the right group of people to be in the room to respond to those prompts. Um, often we'll do a lot of sort of one-on-one -on -one interviews with lots of people who are involved with the project to get a sense for what their personality is like, what their expertise is like. Um, and then select sort of a smallish group, five, five to ten sort of people, um, that's quite a balanced table. You know, you've got different energies around the table, you've got loud people, you've got quiet people, um, you've got people that come from a commercial background, from a creative background, from a um, governance background. Um, yeah, and you, and you try and find that balance. You try and balance the table so that no one voice is too loud at any one time. Um, yeah, and then you get them in the room and you ask them lots of questions and you prompt them. I'm sure there's much more planning than that. But um, yeah, so we've actually collaborated on one project um, for a city centre rejuvenation um, of a particular strip mall um, that was dead and, you know, the economic model was failing and um, there was many social problems going on as well. And um, I just... I love this story of the people that we were able to bring together in the room. Kate, you were one of the participants in this case. Um, but we also had, you know, a historian who was geeking out on, you know, the colonial history, plus the Wadarong, you know, um, traditional owners within the group, plus, um, you know, Kate as an event producer, plus musician, plus, um, plus actually a retailer all within the group. Um, and, yeah, I think it was the facilitation of them all working together over over the time, over the course of, is it one day, Kate, that day? It was, was it? Three half days. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty quick, actually, I must say. Like, we've run this for three full days, and that also was not quite enough time. Um, so three half days was pretty quick. That was also in an online facilitated capacity as well, which... Um, obviously comes with its own challenges when you're trying to, you know, co-design and have conversations and read each other's body cues. But Kate, was your, what was your experience of working within, as a co-design participant in that case? Uh, I think I've worked in sort of co-design processes that are kind of 
uh, amongst different collabor uh, professional collaborators. And I think diversity is the key. Like whether, regardless of what stage of the project you're at or what you're trying to achieve, I think the most diverse you can make as possible is is the key. Um, what was really good about that, though, is that it was a mix of people that were local to that community and a few people that had, I guess, um, experience at the end of, like, how you might deliver the ideas. So, you know, certain things got a bit of a sense check quite early. Um, and, yeah, I thought it was just a really good starting place for, you know, how some of those things might interact as an idea and then eventually as a deliverable. I felt like some of the stories that might not have come through really got heroed through that process as well, um, particularly the Waterong story, um, which was maybe buried underneath the Gold Rush stories. I'm not giving away too many details here. Um, <laughs> but um, is that part of the process as well about sorting through stories and, and helping participants, you know, work through the different um, competing priorities? Uh, I think... In that particular session, I'm not sure we had enough time to really dig into that. So I think it was a really good way of getting it, like a, you know, it's a bit of a sense checking process um, to sort of, I guess, read the room, you know, as a bit of a metaphor. Um, so, yeah, but I think it's really good to just start to hear, and, and sometimes it's about hearing five different perspectives of the same story or the same place or the same experience. And that's just a stepping stone to the 5,000 different experiences there are, or, you know, in a community. Um, but I just think that's a really helpful way to start thinking about, you know, story and place. So, curiously, from that project, which was the upfront strategy, we did the experience master plan, we identified um, a bunch of projects that could be done. Uh, we got a bunch into the urban design plan um, with, the, with the landscapers and um, public realm. And then there was one brief that we couldn't tackle, so it was the public um, playground area brief. Um, and so that went out to tender. And um, Kate, you and a collaborator or collaborators actually got that um, second contract. So, congratulations. <laughs> um, but, yeah, do you want to speak about that process as well, like taking on something that was that you already had a little bit of intel from and um, how it sort of maybe has fostered your work going through to the design development? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not a place-based designer, but I've worked on playful types of experiences. So I basically tapped on the shoulder of someone I know and said, oh, we should, we should pitch for this and maybe I could be a little part of your team. Um, so I think what's been really helpful is that I just have a bit of background and I sort of have some of those stories that we talked about in those sessions in sort of the back of my mind as we're looking at the play space. And there's certain things where I say, oh, hang on, or we, or we, there was this reference and it's really about making connections between the play space and the rest of the experience or the play space and the other potential opportunities down the future. Um, so I guess... It's, it's a bit of um, background to sort of what the traders were saying. And instead of reading it in a report or hearing it as feedback through, you know, the council or whatever it is, I can, I can hear their voice. So I can hear the intonation in their voice. I can, you know, hear where that story comes from. And I had an opportunity to ask questions and be curious, um, which, you know, in a pretty rapid design process, you often don't get. So, yeah. Awesome. Good scene setting. Yeah. So, digging a little deeper into that um, storytelling, I think we're really tapping into about hearing people's stories, 
becoming custodians of those stories as well um, and then being the champions of them and the voice of the people as the design goes on into design development. Um, so, Rich, how do we, you know, how do we keep that spirit that we discovered during the co-design session going, do you think? Um, yeah, I think stories are, are a really big part of it, particularly because they put uh, a human face to certain ideas in the design process. Um, that San Francisco project, we we actually set up a, a storefront in a vacant building in that community um, for a three-month period and invited people in to do all sorts of different co-design exercises. Um, but I think the most valuable thing was that we, we tapped into the historical society. There was a group of volunteers collecting uh, photographs and, and stories, and they connected us with uh, an 85-year-old resident who talked about when he was a kid how he used to walk the length of this creek we were, we were working with and swim in the San Francisco Bay. And that was such a foreign experience to uh, anyone who'd grown up in more recent years in that community that I think uh, it, it became a kind of North Star for uh, potential positive change. Like, I tend to think that when a project is bringing change to any community that there's typically a good moment historically that residents, like a golden period that residents have all these stories from that is much more valuable to, to sort of set as a, as a sort of guide than any foreign thing a designer could bring to the process. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's how I see them. Yeah, that's awesome. And Tim, storytelling, I think it's closely aligned to strategy, no, and um, how to communicate the strategy in a way that people actually recognise it, can pick up pieces of the puzzle to um, become their own champions of the story. So how do you facilitate storytelling and what are your tips? Um, it's tough. It's tough to do well. Um, it ties a bit into how we make sense of it all, so sense-making components and um, you know how we build memories, you know, stories help us remember certain parts of it, uh, parts of a design, parts of an idea, parts of a narrative. Um, so in, in the sessions, we're able to facilitate conversations in certain places and spaces with certain props, um, getting people up out of their seats, not just sitting down at desks and doing stuff. Um, that helps sort of trigger and build uh, memories so that they are able to draw those stories back up in future and sort of champion them as they go out into their community and they talk about the process that they've been part of, they talk about the potential project that's coming online. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, it's tied into how we sort of make sense of it all and tie it all together. Um, so if you, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, you can research how we make memories and arrange them spatially and do all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, we, we, we weave a little bit of that into our, into our process to help. And storytelling, no doubt, is a good translator, I can imagine, between um, the different languages that all the different design disciplines speak, you know, between an architect, between an urban designer, between a place activator. Um, we're all maybe talking about the same thing, but we use different languages and that communication barrier can be, you know, an inhibitor or it can be an aid sometimes. So, um, yeah. Um, Rich, like, how do we start to tackle that um, language barrier, do you think, as a practitioner who's on both sides, strategy and a deliverer? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we we use visuals a lot, yeah. Um, but I, I think that um, one of the things that, that Free State does very well is to 
you know, not use visuals for um, the stuff that's in them, but to talk about experiences, yeah? Like, because that's what, what uh, connects designers with, with the people who are going to be using that place and owning that place and hopefully adapting it in the future. I think too often we kind of speak, like you say, in our coded languages um, that are, are professional languages and, that, and what happens is we deliver things that don't follow through on the experiences that maybe people interpret from our visuals. So, um, uh, yeah, I think the more we talk about experiences is what we're trying to create, uh, the better. And then every other design discipline is just a tool to deliver on that, yeah? Yeah, you're right. I think when um, it's most successful is when you actually talk about human outcomes and, you know, what is our aspiration of the experience of this place um, rather than, you know, focusing on a demographic or a, um, a type of person um, based on, you know, their income or their, um, their interest in life through quantitative data. Totally, totally. I also think like a lot of design images, we don't question them enough and something looks beautiful. But if you look at it again, you're like, what, what do I do here? And ordinary people kind of cut through that pretty quickly, you know. Yeah. Can I just say that I think also the thing about stories is, yes, there's always there's stories from the past about place. But, you know, where I think storytelling in place is really effective is when it connects the past to the future in really clever ways that brings multiple perspectives together. But at, whether you've got those historical stories or not, you create places for people to make stories. And so when they... And it becomes the scene. So they say, I went to X place. It's the scene of my story. These are the characters in my story. And so, you know, you want to create the right stage. And that stage, those stories could be anything. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, do you think Instagram has been good for this type of thinking about places? Because, I mean, in some ways I think it has. In other ways it hasn't. Um, but I do think that people capturing and sharing their experience places and that becoming a measure for some of our commercial clients to judge the success of their places and for it to market their places has shifted from design magazines being the only venue of photographs of finished buildings or... I think it's good except for the fact that there's a tendency to only tell a particular kind of story and is that story actually true, <laughs> you know? You're having a go at my Instagram life, aren't you? <laughs> I'm not an Instagrammer. <laughs> They're all true. They're all true. No, you're, you're right. You're tapping into this sort of idea of when a place has contested histories, Kate, um, and storytelling can be a key component of working through those challenges. Like, can you tap into, you know, what sort of experience you've had a couple of co-design processes through um, championing Indigenous narratives as well? Um, so did you want to chat to us about, like, that process? And uh, I, It's kind of my role in those processes is a facilitator and it's just knowing when to step aside and knowing what stories are not yours to tell and asking permission and, and, and creating a process that allows other people to decide whether those stories are relevant to tell in that particular space and, and how those stories want to be told if they're appropriate for that place and just nurturing, a, you know, shepherding a process to bring them to life in a really, you know, positive way. Um, so I think... Step aside is why. Yeah. And full acknowledgement that our panel is um, not as diverse as it could be. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think we do enjoy working with um, super diverse groups within our projects. Like um, one project for a workplace campus actually um, got together 
um, an urban designer, you know, with um, with an arts, you know, activation producer plus a HR consultant um, plus what else? A future food systems designer, um, and we were all coming together to kind of solve this workplace problem. Um, and it was that sort of building on each other's ideas over and over again over a sort of a series of days that I think we ended up working through the problems. But I would say, I mean, um, Tim and Kate and Rich, we were all actually a part of this project in varying degrees. It was like 80% discussion and 20% work. Like, am I right? Or, yeah. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my job in that project was just to ask the questions and collect the stories from those stakeholders and, and sort of feed them back into another creative process. So I, I do think one of the whole thing about stepping back and, and being able to play different roles in different situations is something that uh, maybe we should be pushing designers harder on uh, in design education as well. You know, if they're going to be able to work in these projects effectively. You're not always holding the pen, essentially. Mm. And more cross-discipline design more transdisciplinary sort of opportunities. I think these two case studies have proved that getting people together from different disciplines, like only good can come out of that once it's, you know, well facilitated. Um, you can't just maybe let a bunch of designers loose in a room because, you know, they, <laughs> they won't get any work done. But it is a facilitated process. Um, but magic does come from it. <laughs> um. No, it's true. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think that one of the interesting things in that project as well is that uh, sometimes we, uh, we don't engage some of the less uh, glamorous parts of, of organisations to design for them. Um, I think it's great when the, the people in charge of parking and security are at the table with the people in charge of food and all the exciting things as well. And getting a HR consultant included in that, like I think some of the ideas that came out of that... Um, yeah, like took us on a different thought path. Um, having a future food systems designer within the group, um, that was definitely took us on some different paths, um, especially her totemic rock in the middle of the creation table that was brought from, um, to give us good energy from um, Tasmania. <laughs> um, that was a fun one. Um, amongst um, lockdowns, we actually had the chance to do an in-person workshop, which was, <laughs> we did get it. Um, all right, and so the next section that I wanted to talk about was actually ongoing action and how we can get better about doing this. So, you know, um, Kate, as someone who's been throughout the whole entire process, um, what sort of criticisms do you have at all? Like, how can we get better, do you think? This is a question that I'll go around the group and ask you all, but I'm gonna start with Kate. <laughs> so I think I think it's understanding kind of the purpose of the process at each point and I think it's important to kind of understand that ideas are evolutionary throughout the process um, and I think sometimes that's about how you communicate things things that are quite early on to clients at a strategy stage um, that because similarly, even before a project is kind of green-lighted, you know, you've already set the terms of what the project is. It's going to be an X. And so it's got, suddenly it's got a, the budget attached and so there's already preconceptions of what it's going to be. So, and so I think there's, it's, 
you, you need to be careful about how you set up um, people's expectations about what can be delivered um, because good ideas only get better if, as they're nurtured throughout the process. Um, so I think that's probably my, you know, biggest comment. And also that I just think the process of listening and constantly checking in with not just your with colleagues, with partners, with, you know, audience members, communities, it should just be part of your practice all the time. Mm. And so that idea of asking questions, you don't just ask questions at the beginning, you ask lots of questions all the way through and you get lots of different people to ask questions too. Um, and I, it takes time and I think the biggest thing is bed time into projects as much as possible so that it might take in total the same amount of time but you need breathing space in between. And that breathing space is never there, so it gets often gets squashed in, and you you lose the kind of the magic that can happen in the middle. So I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, yeah, no, that's good. And you've just reminded me about leaving more time to check back in with our co-design groups as well. Um, at my own fault, I think it's like something that maybe hasn't been specced enough in the projects that we've done, where you actually return back to the communities and say, "This is what we actually did with all of your, you know, work. Did we did we honour it? Did we get it? What's missing? Um, did we understand everything right? Because there's a tendency, I guess, to um, become custodians of other people's stories, but potentially draw out bits that weren't meant to be drawn out, or interpretate things in different ways that weren't supposed to be that way." Um, but Rich, how would you, you know, ongoing action, how would you, how would you improve our process? Yeah, well, Kate's taken all the good ones. Um, time's a good one. I, I would say we should be changing the way we assess this, the success of design projects. So one of the things I'm really interested in is that whole question of what's the purpose of a project. I think a good design project is kind of like how uh, brands do a campaign, is to build a following for a project. Um, and, you know, we've had some projects where that's been part of the metrics. It's not about a finished design solution. So how many people understand or are on board and are driving the purpose of a project are engaged and invested in its success, um, even to the point where hopefully with some community projects you're able to hand it over to um, a group that's formed and is willing to, to become stewards of, of that piece of work and, and um, adapt it and carry it forward. I mean, a lot of, a lot of projects are not finished a lot of landscape projects especially, need community stewards. And I think that changing the way we see successful projects into that lens would be great. Mm, that handover process is actually really key, isn't it? How do we... We've come up with all these good things, we've um, nailed it, we've had all of these great ideas, but once you hand, you know, sometimes a strategy document or a few posters over to somebody else, it's which I guess is why we include designers in the process. So hopefully they become champions of the design going forwards. Totally. And I think the way we fund projects as well, like, you know, um, in the US, we're lucky to have some community grants, environmental grants, where we don't technically have like a single client, you know, and the community is our client. And so the success of those projects is that we just keep, we keep funding stages of it to work with the community, hoping to build a following where they will carry that forward and have the skills to do so. Mm. But I was just going to say the very idea of you hand over a project kind of encapsulates the idea that a certain group of people design and deliver and then you pass the baton on. And I think, forget the baton, that it's, it's a merging process, not a kind of handover. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is, but it's kind of like a growing process, isn't it? Like you should be building more and more people who are invested in it, broadening the scope of the project to satisfy the needs of wider and wider group of people. But that's generally hard when there's no budget allocated for the things that we've come up with. Clients didn't know they needed the things that we concepted together. So, you know, that it sounds very altruistic and, and I would love to do things that way if the client had money allocated for these things. But uh, generally, from my experience anyway, there's a whole business case stop point at that point where you have to go and prove the value of these things and the economic return and the social model underneath it. And, um, yeah, it just sort of, it halts the process, maybe because the system isn't designed for this just yet. Yeah, it's no, totally true. Yeah, that's why I can't sing the praises enough of the California Environmental Protection Act, <laughs> which essentially is is funds looking for community needs. And, and I think we need more more funding mechanisms like that as well, you know. But, but it's interesting because a lot of projects we, the whole activation question on a project, you know, clients build things, they're still looking for activation. They're, they're still, they're looking for stakeholders to keep using and curating that project. And, and so there is like, there is a symbiotic connection there between a commercial client and a community group as well. Maybe we just need to crack that. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Tim, what would you improve? Uh, I think I'd change the, the nature of the engagement. So rather than sitting alongside other sort of designers delivering things and outcomes, maybe we need to move a bit more client side. Maybe we need to be engaged in a different way. Um, you know, I think of sort of web developers who might build a thing and then they get engaged on a retainer for ever more. You know, they're there to update it, to change it, to evolve it, to grow it. Um, they're there as an expert consult. Um, the organisation might bring in new platforms or new devices or new tools and they, they consult on sort of those decisions. Um, I think maybe there's a new way of us being engaged by clients um, that allows for that sort of ever-evolving type of work. Um, is it a retainer? I don't know. Is it a, is it a slush fund that we just get to draw from? I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But yeah, the nature of our engagement, I think, would help a lot. Mm. And sometimes part of this process is actually helping the client be ready to deliver on these co-design processes that, or co-design outcomes that we've come up with together. Um, one particular example is um, could this workplace client set up an experience fund where all these different disciplines, because I guess the nature of our work being co-design is most of our outcomes um, require cross-discipline delivery. So even from within the client teams, whether it's a workplace or an urban realm place management client, it requires all of their teams to be working together to deliver the projects, which maybe their teams aren't set up that way to communicate properly, to even deliver the things that we've been telling them that they need to do. So it's a bit of a systemic problem, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I, I like what you're saying, Tim, about sort of setting it up and, and maybe helping to change the role of um, the facilitators and ourselves as practitioners to become, um, I don't know, yeah, partners with the clients a little bit more. Um, to be involved in the ongoing um, creative direction or delivery partners or something. Um, there's definitely a lot to learn, I think, from the UX sort of and digital world about the way that they set this up and um, obviously so many other industries are already doing co-design, um, particularly healthcare, you know, other industries with lived experience. Um, 
So there's some industries there that we could definitely study and learn from, I think. Um, yeah, any other thoughts or final remarks? Anything we've missed today? And then I'm going to open it up to the audience. So get your questions ready, please. Uh, yeah, I, I meant to mention at the very start that what we're trying to avoid is getting people in a room who are angry and are shouting <laughs> yeah. over the top of each other. I mean, that's essentially what we're trying to avoid because it's, it's not constructive and, it's, and if, we're, if we're at that point, then we've missed the project's dead already. <laughs> so I, I think that, that's the standard practice at the moment, yeah? That's what engagement looks like too often. Yeah, absolutely. I think that taps into what, you, Tim, you were saying earlier about that sort of oh, vetting is the wrong word, um, upfront investigation and about talking to people uh, maybe in a slightly smaller group, like a one-to-one -one kind of interview situation um, where you're understanding uh, their uh, what's working, what's not working in a uh, more uh, personal sort of environment before we bring them into the co-design um, environment. It's, it's not that you don't want any squeaky wheels in the group. You want a few squeaky wheels, but you don't want everyone to be a squeaky wheel. You want to balance, kind of get a, a mix of positive and not negative, but, you know, sceptical voices around the table helps a lot. Yeah, I, th I think engaging people one-to-one -one also makes them feel heard, like which I think a lot of that anger in community engagement is often when people don't feel like they've been heard at all. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the way that you like facilitate that as well. We're not just asking for a long list of what would you do here? And you end up with 200 random ideas left sitting on the desk of an urban designer or an architect and they go, that's great. So I'm going to do my design now. Um, <laughs> but actually, you know, chatting to people and again, it, oh, full circle, it comes back to storytelling, it comes back to lived people's experiences um, and getting there, um, putting a human face, I guess, to the, to the stories um, so that we do have some common threads that we can pull through into our designs um, and ground clients you know, when they go off piste and they turn into language like, I like, I don't like, we actually have some human stories to bring back the decision-making to. Um, ultimately, helping clients make better decisions um, and designers making better decisions. I th but I also think, and I don't know what the answer to this is, but just that idea that you, how do you change the client engagement process so that it is much more of a participatory, uh, you know, partnership model you know, client, deliver, consultant, so that there's a learning outcome, you know, change management or change process on the client side as well. So it's that subtle handover with the client as well as the community. Um, yeah, absolutely. We actually had that today in a presentation delivering um, to an airport client who put their operations and their delivery teams into our presentation to be like, you need to hear all of this, um, you need to be involved in this process um, because all of this nuance and all this passion needs to be involved in even in their delivery teams who weren't involved in the co-design, but then they become custodians of this process and of the stories that we'd created along the way. So it does help um, with the change management of the client as well about how they brief projects, how they spec projects and how they deliver projects as well. Cool. So, audience, co-audience. I'm looking at you all. Yes, question here. I think we've got a microphone if you... 
Um, David Sinclair. Um, got a company developing property solutions, been running for 25 years. So I've got a fair bit of experience with uh, some major projects um, uh, as well as community projects. Um, I um, chiefly operate at the sort of design and development management um, um, part of the spectrum, but also help to initiate projects as well. And I've got a couple of questions. Um, one, one question is the time it takes the process. Let, let's just say there was a co-design specialist group um, being paid by the developer, um, what sort of time frame um, would you be able to get uh, get something done within the 12 months it might take to get a planning permit? Because once the planning permit lands on the table, it's pretty well, no, there's the solution. Um, my second question is about handing over the project. Um, what about um, a post-development evaluation process where you can come back and look and see if you've achieved the objectives and the goals that were originally set up? So that's, um, I'm just trying to put a little bit of discipline into you know, what, what the co-design does, but I, I agree, it's a very important to get stories right and uh, try and place a project. I've got a cracker at the moment that's gonna evolve that is gonna involve a lot of consultation and uh, a lot particularly with uh, the help of council. So, yeah. Absolutely, thank you for those questions. Um, I think, shall I answer first and then I'll see if you guys got any extra <laughs> things to add. Um, I would say it's a minimum of 12-week process, at least minimum, and that's on the short end of the spectrum. Um, that's, you know, asking, doing the upfront research and then moving into a visioning phase, and then the co-design can be happened, you know, um, over sort of one week. But then it's what you do with that afterwards as well. We can't just, just take that raw insight. You have to turn it into something else. Um, so 12 weeks minimum. Um, and um, and then again on the evaluation towards the end, um, we would set up metrics in the very beginning from the investigation phase that Tim mentioned earlier as well. Um, so that investigation phase would identify the problems that we're trying to solve, um, the human problems, the spatial problems, um, also, you know, um, yeah, is there any tech and software sort of problems as well? So we would understand that. And from there, we get our metrics um, or success metrics. Um, it can be quantifiable. We do in use part of um, some data as well, scrape up the very front. So collaborating with place intelligence kind of places. Um, and all of that goes together to create some metrics um, that we can use to, um, yeah, check our co-design um, outcomes against. Are these... Um, tap are these uh, solving the human problems that we set out to solve in the very beginning, the spatial problems. Um, and then if we get any projects through to delivery, because sometimes not all of our projects do actually go ahead, they end up going into different funding cycles. So there might be some in the very beginning that we can action even from today and that we can literally get into the urban design plan or into the workplace you know, rejuvenation plan. But then there might be some that get put into the next and a future planning cycles as well. Um, so I think we're all talking about at the moment places that needed rejuvenation. Um, we um, haven't talked today about a project um, that was from conception and from planning cycle, um, but I think we've... I think we've worked on those as well. I mean, I think one of the things about the timeline piece is that I think an integrated co-design into a design team, a traditional design team, is when it's most valuable so that it's not a separate 
it's not a separate process, yeah? So you're not like making commitments to whoever that audience is, whether that's a tenant or it's, you know, a, a sort of, you know, the stakeholders in a precinct that we then can't follow through on because uh, the people who are qualified around engineering or architecture come through and deliver something later. Um, but I think that, I think in a new development, it's really interesting because the, the audience or the, who you want to co-design with is, could be quite diverse, yeah? So like working with tenants or talent uh, for potential tenants to understand what they would want in a building is kind of something that I would assume is a must-do for, for commercial developers um, already, but maybe there's just layers that are not happening, for example, in a precinct stakeholders, you know, understanding the amenities that you're going to consider in a building. I think, I think a lot of this happens, but it doesn't necessarily happen in, in an organised way. Um, and, and in terms of metrics, I think one of the things that's really interesting is um, with our commercial tenants is when we... Um, it's kind of, uh, that's where HR comes in, yeah? Where it's like, how are, we, are we attracting talent that wants to work in this building? And in the current context, that's a massive question when nobody wants to work in a building. So um, I think it's something that we'll probably see more and more of, but it's, a, it's something that has easy metrics to measure, which is, are people turning up? Are they sticking around? Are we attracting the right types of employees and keeping them... You know, so I don't know if we need separate separate metrics beyond that. Maybe we do. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's an interesting thing that you bring up a bit between, like, the current users but speculating for future users, um, which we haven't really tapped into today. We've been working with just sort of maybe more current users of the places and spaces. Um, but, yeah, how to maybe more data analytics would help to define um, who are the type of people that are going to come here in the future and maybe working with those types of groups to then co-design places for the future. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Yeah, well, um, uh, in commercial, can you hear? Yeah, that's better. Um, in commercial, um, um, on a mixed-use project, yeah, you need to talk to the tenants um, to understand what they want to get out of it. And, you, and certainly in terms of what's been happening in the workplace um, uh, more recently. Um, uh, the choices um, are there. Do you want to work here? Um, it's almost the, like the interview stage, you know? Is this a place that I, I'm going to be happy to, to work in, you know? And if it's not, then I'm out the door. So, yeah. And then maybe that's when you bring in the workplace specialists as part of the team. So it's like broadening the team away from just being architect, engineer, structure, civil, whatever. He's got to bring in the front end and I really see this as a front-end experience, but also if you then are running a, a dialogue with council because you're talking about improving and your project of starting to generate improvement in the, in the local area, then you're going to find that the uh, other property owners are going to want to be part of it and try and join in. So, um, yeah, yeah so it's, uh, and you may find some funding at a council yeah. as a result. It strikes me as um, something like a prototype would be a really fun way to sort of um, engage users in that sort of case and talking about the future users, like what could we do here and let's just try some things out. Um, did we have a question up the back there? Hi. Um, if you don't mind, I, I can make a bit of a comment on David's question um, around planning permit, which I think comes to what you guys talked about before around the criticality of defining purpose 
So, um, you know, if you're even thinking about planning permit, you kind of need to engage and do that investigation and co-design before you even, you know, think about planning permits. So I would say there's a process that happens even before you've decided on a project, you know, because you need to understand, well, what is the project for? So that was all I was going to say. Yeah, I also, in, in that timeline of a planning permit, um, and I... I hope that there's none of the architects that I work with here. But, but I mean, there's plenty of waste in the design process that councils are sort of left perplexed around its purpose as well. You know, I think that's, that's what co-design really brings a question around is like, what are we paying architects for? How much, how much do we value the beauty of something versus its purpose and getting the both and between that? You know, like uh, the story of of how a building can contribute to its context is much more powerful sometimes than a form-based concept, yeah. Certainly to council, I think. Yeah, I think it's a massive shift of culture on the client side, um, you know, and the architect side, really, to kind of shift from architect as visionary to being able to kind of pass the pen around and be really generous in, you know, how something gets designed. But I'll hand over... Hi everyone, my name is Aneta and what I'm curious about is how do you design the experience for the co-design session? Whether you consider where you meet, how, you, how the place is furnished, what tools you use, what part of the day it is? Uh, short answer, yes. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of discussion and uh, preparation that goes into planning the sessions. Um, you know where where it's hosted, what time of day, um, which days of the week. You know, so there's there's obviously a lot of work that comes before we can have a session. We need to set up the space. We need to pin things up on the walls. We need to print out stuff. So you know, generally not in the morning, but also you don't want to have it after lunch, so we might do it over lunch. Anyway, there's a lot of things to consider. Um, and we sort of map it out across a week so that it, um, you know, the activities build on each other. So we might um, start one day working as individuals and then pair up so that people can share those ideas and build on each other's ideas before sharing back to the broader group. Um, and, it, and it might be about uh, defining better questions in the first day in the second day, we might be answering some of those questions with concepts. In the third day, we might be stitching those concepts together into a narrative. So just like a three-panel story of what a day in the life might look like. Um, so yeah, there's, there's kind of there's preparation for the actual activities and, and, and the experience of the workshop. But you've, you kind of do it at a macro level as well as a micro level. So you think about how each of the sessions feed on each other and, and build and grow over time. Um, as well as making sure that people have fun. The sessions, you know, shouldn't feel like work. They should feel, they should feel like fun. There's definitely an intensity that we do build though, right? Like, we make people work hard. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, the, um, the experience um, 
we call it the five C's of experience, which really is just a fancy name for user journey mapping. Um, taking all these individual ideas, but how you actually start to join them together into larger concepts and then map them over a day or a week or a year about how they end up sort of flowing together into a series of events. So um, what's your favourite um, activity that we do, Tim? I did, I did one uh, this week, which was called Sailboat to Success, which was pretty fun. Uh, but that's a, sort of an alignment activity where you try and get a group aligned around a goal, which is the island that you're trying to get to, and you put everyone in a boat. and um, You talk about what are the risks that we're looking for, so you draw a little pirate boat, and people put the risks up on the pirate boat. And it's pretty, it, it, it's sort of a fun, it's a fun activity, but um, because, it's, because it's a visual guide, it embeds those um, other stories from other people around the table in, in everyone's minds. We all, we all share that uh, sort of goal-setting exercise and we all understand more about what everyone else around the table is um, interested in seeing as success and we all sort of take it away and, you know, everyone's sort of laughing about, oh, can you believe so-and-so put that on the pirate ship or that on the anchor or that on the island? Um, it really, yeah, it, it worked quite well. That's probably my favourite from this week. It changes every week, but um, that's my favourite activity currently. Awesome. Any other questions over here? Hi. Um, so you've spoken a lot about the investigation stage, the discovery stage, and how that's a co-design process. Um, um, when you come to like hardcore designing, like when you, you know, you have to end up with something that has to go to planning or gets built or whatever, is that process also a co-design? Like do you get all the disciplines in the room together or do you, does everyone go off and do their bit and come back together or, you know, how does that, that end of the process work? Um, Rich, do you want to take that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think what we're... One of the things about co-design is, as a practice, it's all of the same skills that good collaboration is across disciplines, yeah? So it's kind of like having, not just having everybody in the room, but having everybody who's in the room respect the views of other people and know what they don't know and try and find the overlaps in our interests. You know, like, I mean, essentially what Tim's describing with a table of different perspectives from the community is, like, is, is what we should be doing on all design projects um, rather than having a, a lead and a series of sub-consultants, you know. Um, I think maybe um, there's different levels of success that process depending on how well-educated people are around around that. But I, th I think even um, the mix of disciplines, you know, like if, if you have the same mix of disciplines that you have on every project in that session, you're probably going to get the same sorts of solutions rather than if you mix in another stakeholder, whether that's somebody from HR or an experienced designer or somebody who's going to, you know, curate the programming of a space. So I, I think it is, it is essentially still a co-design process, but uh, it takes a little bit of cracking open from, to get it to work differently to how it works in traditional practice, yeah. In that case, I'd say you really, I mean, 
some successes that we've had is when you've actually had a client who champions the co-design process through the design phases as well. Um, so the client is sitting there going, you know, where did you get that co-design strategy and vision into your plan? Show me where those co-design concepts are. And likewise, coming back to us as the strategists and the visionaries going, where have you been able to put that into the plan? So um, there may be different phases where, you know, co can come in. So we've, today we've talked a lot about co-strategy and co-visioning, um, but definitely going into co-design and co-production and co-activation eventually, um, it's definitely successful throughout the whole process, um, but does take, it's disruptive in the design process, no doubt. Um, so it does take a few champions who will keep drilling hard on those designers in the room where is it? Where's the human? Where's the story? Where's the sense of place? Where's that co-design things that we came up for? Do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And I think one of, one of the real strengths of the co-facilitation, co-design process um, is that we do do rapid ideation as a group. So um, everyone comes up with solutions to the provocations that we've got from the investigation. They come up with real solutions. It might be a giant frog statue, it might be a playground, it might be this, it might be that. But the strongest ideas bubble to the top from the group. So we have sort of a, a natural vetting process within the group. It gets sounded off against everyone around the table. Um, but the strength of the process is that the, the client understands what's driving those ideas so that when they're working with other designers in other design disciplines, it might not be the giant frog sculpture that makes it in, but the intent behind the giant frog sculpture informs the design outcomes from other design disciplines. So yeah, we sort of, we use that ideation to generate things, but we use them to help articulate or, or, or vision that, that purpose of the project. Does that kind of answer the question? Yes, another question. Hi, um, can you hear me? Nigel from uh, Ascensus. Uh, in terms of honing purpose, um, in, in the light of the donut model of circular, uh, circular economy, I'm just wondering, after listening to this, this um, very enlightening and, and uh, wide-ranging conversation, uh, thank you for that, uh, it, whether there are any metrics for uh, co-design uh, in terms of sustainability, in terms of a green building uh, code, a neighbour's code, Green uh, Building Council of Australia, gold star for fitness for purpose, um, co-design and um, sustainability. So a way to change manage through the whole uh, facilities management process where the architects um, become a sort of curator of the evolution of a project. I was lucky enough to visit the, the Pride Centre in St Kilda today, um, Brealey Architects, Bow Architects project, um, recently returned from, from uh, Shanghai. And James was basically walking us, uh, walking, walking me around, talking to each of the users while they still were completing, um, say, the, the bar, um, and, and just checking in with them, seeing how they were doing, what they were still looking for, what, what refinements were needed, making suggestions. So almost a pastoral role um, rather than just walking away from the project. It helps that he's a few doors down the road, um, but I, I found that very instructive, um, 
where, where the architect has an ongoing role. And I'm just wondering if we could somehow institutionalise that through something like a Neighbours or Green Building Council of Australia star system. So um, it just becomes formalised. And we all do it. Mm. From a sustainability, uh, fitness for purpose uh, point of view. So that the, the building actually, the delivered building can evolve, is permitted to evolve in a way that um, maintains its optimization, if you like. Mm. I would say optimization in terms of people power as well is maybe my angle to that and about maybe less so more the architects or the designers being involved in the ongoing curation, but how do we include the people and the community in the ongoing process and curation and creation and activation of this place as well? Um, but did you have any thoughts? Yeah, there, there's, I don't know about a building, but you might be familiar with the Eco Districts Certification of Portland, which is like requires governance set, to be set up for, for a precinct. So I think it, it speaks to like the purpose of what we're building and, and the more people and users involved in shaping something, the more longevity you would think it should have in, in use and purpose. Um, so I think that, that works in neighbourhood certifications. But yeah, it's an interesting one around buildings. I don't know. Maybe something along the lines of the, the well standard, but uh, more related to, to exactly what you guys have been talking about tonight. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. The human experience certification. Is this fit for humans? Yeah, maybe we should change. Um, yes, while, while we still know we're only, there are only humans here. Yeah, maybe we should yeah. change what uh, at the Architecture Awards what, what gets shared about each project so it's not just photographs. It's actually stories from people that use the building. It's a, you mean people in buildings in architecture idea. photos? <laughs> what? A, but not just in the photo. I mean them talking about why they love the photo, why they love the project, you know, rather than, uh, rather than just the people who commissioned it and commissioned the photographs. They'll, they'll have to be a separate one for AIs. Any other questions? Ah, yes, at the back. Thanks. I have one question. Um, so given co-design is kind of an iterative process all the way through and possibly after, to your point, um, how important is it to have the same people at each of those sort of stages or do that, does that kind of grow over time? to sort of achieve the level of diversity you're looking for. Kate, I feel that's one for you. Uh, I don't know. I think, I wonder if it's most successful when it's almost like a sliding scale. So, you know, at the beginning you need, I mean, I think if it's in terms of kind of end users and community, it's, you know, do you champion a community group that sort of, evolves over time. But I think in terms of some of those professional inputs, um, I think it's really important to have kind of um, people who are going to deliver and activate place or work with community and partners to activate place evolved a little bit at the beginning and then sort of more and more as the process goes on. But equally, I think it's really helpful to have people um, that are involved in the front end involved a little bit towards the end. So... I don't know if that answers your question because I think it, I mean, it really depends on the project and the people and the place and, you know, that's a way of not answering the question. 
Um, and maybe setting up those champions along the way who may be more prominent in some parts and then, you know, disappear, but then might come back again a little bit later or their um, sort of um, involvement in the pro project might, you know, um, change in levels along the way as well. But maybe that's also to the point around metrics. And so, you know, and you set up the purpose of a project at the beginning and that sort of defines, and the vision, and that defines the metrics. And so there's metrics that you measure along the way, but there's also people that are involved that are kind of speaking on behalf of those metrics. So, you know, who is, who's championing the birds? You know, it's a human-centred place, but is it a nature-centred place? Um, and how do you, how do you embody those voice, voices all the way through? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, it's, at some point, it's good to have everyone in the room mashing all those interests together. And then if the project evolves well, I suppose people get their place within the project to deliver and steward different parts of it, you know? Yeah, maybe that's part of our um, human experience metric scale. Um, you know, is it country-centred rather than human-centred, actually? And, you know, what are the metrics and how do we keep this going for a little bit longer? Any final questions from the audience? Yes. Coming back to the idea you're talking about, sort of that ticking the box thing, I think a lot of people's experience of community consultation has maybe been with government, and there might be this mistrust level there of, yeah, this is just, why do I give my time for this? What's the, yeah, what's the point kind of thing? I might kind of just bring a bit of anger there from the outset. How do you get that trust in? How do you cut through that and say, no, we're different? Um, and how do you, yeah, get them to invest in a way that, that, that gets good information for you to work with? It's a long process, isn't it, Rich? Yeah, it is. I think there's a couple of things you can do really quickly, though. I really like when the co-design process has, makes physical change in a place immediately and illustrates to people that, like, stuff can happen. Yeah, because like you're not just getting them in a room and asking for their opinion and then bearing it in a report. Um, so like, you know, we've taken over vacant buildings and communities, put up, uh, you know, sort of six metre high aerial maps with huge ladders for them to climb up and put post-it notes on places that they want to see change. Like I kind of think it has, it has to be a bit of wonder about it. At the moment um, in the Bay Area, we're, we're uh, tearing up uh, invasive species along the shoreline and planting 400 native plants into a garden that represents the change along a four-kilometre creek. You know, I think you've got to you've got to do something that's like actually a project in order to get the input on a bigger project. Is, is my opinion. Mm. And sometimes just starting with one thing, you might get one thing through, and then a client might end up coming back to you five years later and going, oh, you know, you were speaking about really beautiful things. Um, you set the scene for a really nice vision, and, and now we're, now we're ready. Um, and projects might keep going five years later. It does circle back, luckily. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> Thank you. All right, we're over time, but thank you for staying with us um, through this co-expedition. Um, we'll hang around if you've got any final questions, but um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to my co-panellists, 
Rich, Kate, Tim, you've been amazing. Um, thank you to the audience and hope we can continue this conversation. Thank you. listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.